Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Happy birthday to you. Happy. Happy birthday to you still creepy happy birthday mrs president happy birthday to you great job happy birthday lizzie thank you super creepy but i appreciate it and so do our listeners if they stuck through that, then it can only go uphill from here. Then we they... are the House of Pod. We're a medical type podcast. Talk about medical type things. Usually, sometimes not. I'm Kaveh. I'm Lizzie. Um, how you doing, buddy? I'm good. Happy um, my birthday. birthday. Thank you. It's been a good day. It's beautiful here. Went to the beach. Saw some Kaveh. Got mm-hmm. a little Kaveh time. That's right. Um, Sent a lot of our listeners stickers over the weekend. So everyone, we hope you enjoy. Please check your mail. Um, <laughs> and uh, just in like doing some hikes and being outside, I was listening to the radio a lot. And there's a story from Freakonomics, which I don't listen to that often. But I heard this story, essentially how um, car seats are not any better than seatbelts. You mean our kids, like kids car seats? Sorry. Yeah. I didn't know that there was adult car seats. No, I mean, like car seats, I imply like, you know, the seats that you sit in in a car. No, sorry. The car seats. Yeah. For children. children, um, I think it's above, if it's above the age of two. So infants, you know, you can't sit and get a seatbelt on, you know, if they're one years old or a few months old, but two years old and above and and maybe to 11 or whatever the terms are now, like, I think you're supposed to have a kid in a car seat until they're 40 pounds or something like that. Yeah. But that apparently there's actually no data that's ever said a car seat for a three, four, five, six-year-old is better than just an adult seatbelt. No kidding. And yet our transportation, Secretary of Transportation and our Department of Transportation makes it a law that you have to use a car seat, which I found fascinating for so many reasons. And you know how we everyone talks about big pharma. <laughs> I'm yeah. like, oh my God, big car seats are 
totally ruining the industry of, you know, free driving. Because as you know, as a parent, car seats are a huge pain in the ass and very challenging for some people. And apparently the technology hasn't really changed or improved over the last 10 or 20 years. But I just thought that was so interesting because the argument is that people are essentially having fewer kids. People are not having that third kid. And one tiny part of that is because the obstacle of car seats and transportation is such a huge burden (laughs) that people might not have that third kid. I thought the whole thing was fascinating. I I have to say, I am surprised that there's no evidence. I, because I hear from lots of parents that are like, particularly mothers who are like, I'm keeping my kid in a car seat for as long as possible. And and it's interesting to know that I did not know that. I would love to see if anyone else has any evidence to the contrary. We'd love to see it. Yeah. Um, but that These is guys very did interesting. Their, so, they did their own experiments. They did their own crash test dummy experiments. And apparently they had a really hard time finding a crash set, a crash test site that would let them do the experiment. I think because they were scared of big car seat. <laughs> like, wait, so so you're implying that because of this like car seat lobby, that's why we have these rules because there's no evidence behind it, but the car seat has somehow put pressure on on our secretary of transportation yeah Yeah, it's for two reasons i think the business is huge so yeah you're saying the pro car seat lobby if that's a thing who knows we have no idea what we're talking about but the second thing is because it it seems it's intuitive and it makes sense so i think people just buy it literally and figuratively people just buy into it and they are happy to go buy it if it if you think that you are saving your kid and helping reduce risk you're going to buy it. It's a total, totally. you know, the industry is a, a mind game, right? Well, if we suddenly disappear and there's no more recordings of the house of pod, it's because of big car seat. <laughs> they got to us. Anyway, um, it's not important. I just, I my mind was blown. I just thought I wanted to share that. All right. Well, if you want to hear more stuff, that's going to blow your mind, Lizzie, stay tuned because we have a really interesting guest coming up. We have Trisha Pendergrast. She is a medical student. And she's written a paper recently about online harassment of doctors. Um, It's a really interesting article. I want to go over it with her and also talk to her just about medical school in general. I got a lot of questions about that. Before we go, shout out to Nadim. Thank you so much uh, for helping us with production. A shout out to the good folks at Dropbox for helping us with uh, providing the information storage space that we need to help do our show. And um, follow us on Twitter, if you haven't, at the House of Pod also on Facebook and Instagram as well. (sighs) Anyone else you want to thank? No. Stay tuned. And welcome back. Today with us, we have Trisha Pendergrass. Pendergrass? Not Prendergrass, but Pendergrass. No, first time. You nailed it on the first time. Fantastic. <laughs> yep. um, and she is a second-year medical student from Northwestern Medical School. She has written a very interesting article in uh, JAMA Internal Medicine that we want to talk to her about. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Thank you. Will you tell our listeners a little bit about your background? So you're a second-year med student and... um. A little bit about your in your class of 164 people. Yeah, so I'm a second year at Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine right now. Um, we're in that weird time where we're kind of studying for step and also going to school full time um, of the year. 
And um, yeah, it's been a very unique experience thus far because I've had my entire M2 year and part of my M1 year has been completely remote because of the pandemic. Yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting time to come into medicine. Um, have you been seeing patients? Um, so for the last several months, we have been. Um, we're one of the schools that does a longitudinal clinical experience, which is something that's pretty popular with the medical schools these days. You either get um, a preceptor at the beginning of your M1 year and stick with them for all four of your years, or you get put into like a they're called education-centered medical homes, but it's me and current M1s and M3s and M4s um, and a doctor. And we're there the whole time, M1 through M4 year. And I go every other Tuesday. So I see patients, but it's for an afternoon every other week. So it's not like I'm on clerkships. Um, we were pulled from that for a little bit in the beginning of the pandemic, but I've been doing that uh, this year, M2 year. So for during COVID, um, I spent a little time uh, at Bellevue during in April. And at that time they had just graduated all of the fourth year med students because it was March and April when it really struck New York City. They were all gonna graduate in two, three months anyway. And I don't know, I don't know if you know yet, but the fourth year med school is a little bit of a joke for some people, right? So they're like, like your best year. Yeah. It's like what's you know, a lot of people focus on their research or do the things that they're interested in doing. So it's it should be lighter, a little bit lighter. Um, so they graduated all those med students and they went to help and be like interns and run around the hospital and take care of dying patients and call family members and all the things that we've seen on every newspaper and every news outlet. Have you got, have you had to be redeployed in any way during COVID? No, I'm not useful enough yet. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's true. Just of it. Um, no, I mean, I haven't been redeployed in that way. Um, we were not in a situation in Chicago where that became necessary. Um, yeah. I found other things. These are boxes of PPE behind me. So I've, I found other things to do to occupy myself pandemic wise and still help. And many of my classmates have as well. Um, but we were never put into clinical situations to do, you know, intern work. Yeah. So what are you doing with those giant boxes of PPE that I see behind you? Besides stacking them so nicely. Yeah. Um, <laughs> nice Jenga. Thank you. Um, so I'm one of the co-founders of an organization called Get Me PPE Chicago. We do PPE distribution to community organizations and healthcare workers. And we've been at that since uh, my spring break last year. That was more, I was like, this is fine. It'll just last to the end of the week. And we're still at it, you know, 10 months later. So well, that's great, man. You mean um, right at the beginning of COVID? That's like spring break is like usually March-ish, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So we're like, Fun. oh, let's just reclaim this PPE and get it to where it needs to go. And then you know, or I guess we're approaching a year later and there's still PPE shortages. So the silver lining of that story, you could say that you've had the longest spring break in history. So congratulations. It sounds like you, you won the jackpot, right? Yes. Just Indoors kidding. in Just my kidding. apartment. It's terrible. <laughs> no, Thank it's you for helping. It sounds Thank you like so a much. Great... You're doing a lot. Um, yeah. So you had mentioned in passing before the step that you were in the midst of or the step that you were preparing for. Can you tell our listeners, some of them who don't know about the step, what, what is the step and which one are you on? The worst one, which is uh, step one. Mm -hmm. So I have the myself and the other M2s right now have the distinct pleasure of being the last class to take step one, which is our board examination um, for a three digit score. So this is a test that was designed to essentially 
assess our knowledge of the things that we learned in the preclinical years and has been, for lack of a better term, weaponized um, and now controls essentially whether you match into a residency and which residency you match into. It, it's really amazing to us because we had an episode with Salman Khan, the Khan Academy guy, and we were talking about this and we were trying to explain to him that, you know, when we took step one, it, it wasn't the same thing that it is now. Now it's like one of the major steps are like the major sources of like medical student, like stress and anxiety and depression. It's like a real threat to medical students now because it's so intense now. And now it's going to be going pass fail. I assume you think that's a good idea from what I'm hearing. Yeah, I so I mean, I was let's see about this time yesterday, I was in tears um, because I was so overwhelmed at the prospect of continuing to study four step and also having to pass my school. Um, it's just so much information and it's not information that's always clinically relevant. And I think that's what the most frustrating part has been, has been me sitting at my computer for the last couple of weeks as I'm trying to cram in step studying for an exam that I don't take until April while taking time away from doing lectures where I could be learning from, you know, content experts, um, really interesting things. I mean, we're in the reproductive module and this is stuff that's very, you know, interesting to me. I've always been passionate about reproductive healthcare and I have to take time away from that to learn about how purines and pyrimidines are synthesized in the cell in every way that it can go wrong. Right. Mm -hmm. So what do you mean, um, be, can you elaborate a little bit about weaponized? You're saying that ultimately it carries so much weight that it becomes like the thing that makes or break a student? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's not hyperbole to say that the score that you get on step um, can render everything that you've done up until that point irrelevant. Yeah. So if you blow it on step, and you don't get the score that you're you want you could have wanted to be a dermatologist your entire career yeah. since you were in high school you got really passionate about dermatology you shadowed you um you know you got into a great med school and then you just had a bad day on step or you really mm -hmm. struggled to study for standardized exams and you pass but you don't do well enough yeah end yeah. of dream yeah that's terrible. I've, you know, Kavi and I actually had different experiences and we did talk about this. That For us, we all took studying for that month, like a job. We were all in the library 8 a.m. to like 4 or 5 p.m. every day studying for step one. For us, it was incredibly intense, but we had that month off. We'd already finished our coursework. So right. we were actually had the time to go crazy about it. And we, we all just spent that, about a month. Oh, you do? Okay. We, yeah. So our dedicated starts in March. Okay. That six okay. weeks isn't enough though. Okay. Yeah. There, well, there are people who have been studying since like September of last year. Yeah. But I think what you're saying well, is the weight say, of it for us doesn't sound anything like the way that you're describing No, no. Our it. weight was, yeah, for, for sure. It didn't matter that yeah. much to us. I mean, I, I had a very yeah. different experience. We liked put a couple weekends into that I did I did yeah. not stress about that test and our book was so different like it's so funny because we have this USMLE book that prepares you for it and ours is yeah. a thin yeah. little book and show yeah. us your book oh yeah Trisha. you can see if you line all the first days up you can google them online this is like this is the 2019 version no 
that's like four steps, of yeah. the and there were only, I had. it was four um, and there were only three steps to take and that's the size of four steps that's terrible <laughs> it's a pretty well, so it's pretty sorry. bad so uh i god i feel for you i feel what? for you i and uh you're gonna you're gonna do great though trisha you're gonna mm. do great I can tell. <laughs> um, it's going past fail though, which is so important because you touched on it at the beginning. This is without a doubt one of the greatest drivers of anxiety and depression and suicidality in medical yeah. students. And to to culminate your preclinical time with that and then have to turn around and go into the clinical uh, years and to head onto the wards. It's just so unhealthy yeah. <laughs> what we're going through right now. Yeah. yeah. And more important, it's unhealthy and sounds traumatizing, but it the worst part of it all is that it almost sounds irrelevant. Like it's not making you a better doctor is what you're no. saying. And that's just, that's a terrible way to learn. You know, I think Solomon Khan would agree. I, like it's just a terrible culture and with poor I will, outcomes. I will. I, I agree with that completely. I will say this though, and I don't know if this makes it any better, but I still remember like some of the pictures from like that book when I was studying, I still remember bits of that from the study. So it's not going to leave you completely. It's not the kind of thing that you study for. And then as soon as you're done, it's going to leave your brain completely. No, no, no. You'll and hold on to it. You'll just never need it. Yeah. 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 I think, it's probably I think true. <laughs> there's, so there's like two different things that are happening. One is that it's an excellent way to consolidate your last couple of years. And in that way, it's super important. Like right. I feel my, I feel myself getting smarter in interpreting right. vague clinical things, Right. but the problem is that it also rewards knowledge of asinine facts that no right. one ever needs. So if we could have the consolidation, and this is what Passfail does, if we could have the consolidation without having to push ourselves to know everything, right. then sure. when we don't totally understand those asinine facts but are able to consolidate, we still yeah. get the benefits that Lizzie's talking about with what you're talking about, which is the consolidation. Right? Yeah, no, right. I agree. I mean, every residency program needs to have a bar that they felt is met. And I don't think it matters that much, the the point differential. And that's I clearly some of the guys I knew and, and people I knew in, in medical school that got the best scores on stuff did not seem to be the best clinical doctor. So I don't know. Anyways, um, well, good luck with that. Let's yeah. <laughs> that sounds terrible. I like that at least you feel yourself getting smarter because today on my yeah. birthday, I feel myself getting dumber. You are every okay. year and okay. older. I know um, that happens. Yeah, it does a hundred percent. So let's shift gears a little bit and let's talk about this article that you wrote. Uh, it's called Personal Attacks and Sexual Harassment of Physicians on Social Media. It's uh, on JAMA Online ahead of publication, and it's going to be in JAMA Internal Medicine. It's really interesting. I think it's uh, really interesting to talk about it now, in particular, because I think things have shifted a little bit during COVID. But mm -hmm. uh, can you give us the rundown on your paper? Give us the the sort of the conclusion statement on your paper, what you found? Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so this was a survey study of physicians um, that were recruited on social media. So it was a study about social media, recruited on social media. And we uh, surveyed these physicians and asked them um, yes or no to two questions. Have you ever been personally targeted or attacked on social media? And have you ever been sexually harassed on social media? 
And then we gave a free response box um, that was optional to allow people to elaborate on either of those points if they so desired. Um, so we found that women were more likely than men to report being harassed online. And we found that um, about one in four, 23.3%, I believe, reported being personally attacked on social media and a total of one in six female physicians reported being sexually harassed, um, which is consistent with um, wherever you look, whether it's in person and online and academia outside of it, that women are uh, more frequently sexually harassed. At the, at the similar rates, like around one in four, one in six, are those rates no, correlate? Consistently that women are always harassed more. Right. Yeah. You know, what uh, was there sort of, did you have a bar that had to be met to meet the criteria of harassment? Um, you know, not just someone saying something mean to them in passing in Twitter, but it has to be something more targeted, right? What was the, was there a criteria that had to be met? It was honestly just based on whatever, it was a yes or no question. So it was, it was whatever they thought was harassment or personal tax. And I think that uh, design is important because what I consider harassment may not be what you consider harassment, but I think it's important to um, recognize that really that experience is from the perspective of the person being attacked. And so I don't know how much it would have benefited us to try and like parse through who. It would be so hard to, I don't know how you would really, I guess. Yeah. But in, in the stories that they then would describe, what were people describing? I was going to say, are you part of the people who are like reading the free text comments? Because that I think would be super enlightening and interesting and, and really and hard, I think, and, and probably yeah. incredibly sad. Yeah, um, I, I did help with the categorization. Um, we um, essentially put the types of attacks in buckets. So we tried to categorize them based on common themes. And really, um, the common themes that we found were either people were attacked based on advocacy. So there are topics that affect the way that physicians practice medicine and also affect the people that we provide care to, um, like vaccines and firearm um, injury prevention and smoking and access to women's health care um, that some would consider controversial and others, myself, in <laughs> consider just essential public health communication. Right. Um, there's personal attacks that we found that people were, you know, targeted based on their race. There was threats of lynching. Um, people were sent images of the Holocaust because they publicly identified as Jewish. And then there were these work-based attacks, which are like these coordinated either doxing where personal information was published online, um, NPI information was published online, wow. or like facilities were called. So there would like be coordinated calling attacks on clinics where people would call and harass the clinic where a physician worked. Okay, I got a, a couple of questions. One, was there any evidence of where these were coming from? Like how many of these were coming from the general public, these attacks, and how many were coming from other people in medicine? Great question. We did not record that information. I wish we did. Survey studies are so hard. I mean, right. you have to design it like you're doing yes and no, zeros and ones. It's the easiest and only way to really analyze this stuff and even to categorize must have been so difficult. Like it sounds like after the fact, post hoc analysis or whatever, you tried to categorize it into groups, workplace, mm -hmm. like you said, or, you know, kind of advocacy. But when you think about it, especially in this culture today, when you think about implicit bias 
and microaggressions, like those are hard to pull out. You know, it's yeah. hard to put those in a category. Right. And for a lot of people, especially living in white privilege, it's hard to even identify that it's harassment unless you are actually trained in that. You know what I mean? Yeah, which brings us back to the original point where it was so important that it was the person who was getting harassed that was telling us right. they were being harassed. Um, and we can just say, you know, that person said yes, as opposed to me trying to interpret someone right. else's Sure, right. You know, the the point I was making about, you know, medical, whether, whether it was coming from a medical source or not, because, mm -hmm. you know, med Twitter and the world online, the, the medical world online, there's a lot of difference of opinion there. There's, it's not a homogeneous group. And there's a lot of conflict within that group. Mm -hmm. um, Trisha's giving a knowing look right now. I'm sure she has a story or two. So it, that would really be interesting to me to see the people who are trying to dox, like the people that seem sometimes the most interested in doing that aren't necessarily people from the outside world, people within. Um, but one thing that was interesting uh, about the study was it, it's correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it seemed like the, the biggest group, uh, the biggest source came from vaccine related uh, harassment. Or I'm assuming that meant doctors wrote something about like, hey, get your vaccines. And somebody wrote something like, go to hell, you child murdering bastard. And and I will say from our personal experience, we've done shows about abortion. We've done mm -hmm. shows about guns. We've done shows about anything that you might consider sort of questionable in any way. And the only time we've ever consistent, we've even done shows on Q. And the only time we get the most like hate mail, the most like, anger the most visceral reaction we ever got was when we talked about two things vaccines and supplements I'm how supplements surprised. are not useful and <laughs> how vaccines are super useful and the shit we got is crazy i mean people like when it comes to that sort of stuff are fanatical in, yeah. in like a scary way it's a part of their identity i mean right. and this is this is I think this like leaves this like physician harassment specifically. And I think that people who are so ingrained in a school of thought will attack anyone who yeah. is in opposition to them. And I think at that point, it's not even the fact that you're a physician. It's just that you think that vaccines are helpful and it's yeah. like a part of their identity. So when you endorse vaccines, you go against who they are. That group of people, they believe in it in a way that some of the other people don't like, for example, there's politicians out there who will say, you can't get abortions. You shouldn't get abortions. Oh, it's against God's law. But then they're like secretly trying to get their mistress an abortion somewhere. Right. Or there's people who will like come out and pretend they're super NRA friendly to get them to support them, but they don't really care that much. But if you're someone who really believes the vaccines are causing illness to your kids, you're willing to put your kids in harm's way. Yeah. If you're willing to do that, you are someone who is who is really dangerous. So that's, that's like the final straw, honestly, in a lot of ways. Like people are willing to harm their children for yeah. the sake of being right. Um, what what time period? I don't recall from the study, over what time period were these surveys administered? The was Victorian it? era? No. Um, <laughs> it was it was before COVID, unfortunately. I think that may be where you were going with that question. That is where I was going. Um, I'm not sure if you're still plugged into the study or if it's gonna continue or just from your experience doing the study, if you're like how you know, kind of invested in it, would you do you know for a fact or would you guess that during COVID things have heightened, I guess, or worsened? I mean, we can all imagine based on what's been going on, but do you have any knowledge of it? Yeah, it's, you know, it's a good question. So unfortunately the data does not capture 
um, the coronavirus pandemic. Um, we recruited for this study, I actually think it was a couple years, yeah, in 2019. So mm -hmm. okay. um, all of our crystal balls were not functioning that day. Um, and we uh, don't have any data from the current time. However, um, two, three of the authors on the study are part of a group that does public health messaging around COVID and have been talking about their personal experiences being harassed based on being like saying totally fringe and unreasonable things like wear a mask, stay six feet apart, don't go outside if you don't need just really basic things. Um, we as a group hypothesize that the rate of and viciousness of personal attacks on physicians has only increased right. during the pandemic. No, it's um there's no way it hasn't. Um people are so on edge and I find triggers are everywhere where they weren't and the triggers are much more whatever the term is, and someone helped me with a gun term, much easier to release yeah. if that's a term. Like, yeah. you know, um, you talk about just at work, you say something like, please don't gather, don't have potlucks and nurses on one side and doctors on a, are like, you're accusing me of doing what? You know, like people just feel on edge and everyone feels like they're getting blamed. And if there's an outbreak, they're like, you're clearly blaming me, you know, and you're just saying, please wear a mask, please socially distance, please don't gather. People feel like it's personal, you know? It's yeah. Crazy. And there's the, the other group of people who are so far, um, they've been denying that there's been danger this whole time and now can't go backwards. Right. So they only dig deeper into right. denying that there's no danger yeah. and just right. getting more entrenched in that. Right. Yeah. And that the amount of people who are still vaccine hesitant and again, healthcare workers who are not getting vaccinated, I find um, just so disappointing, really. I'm just um, blown away at the at the the numbers of people avoiding and not signing up when they could be in the front of the line. I I do. That bothers me a lot, too. I do think that those numbers are going to change significantly. I think there is a proportion of medical health care workers who are out there who just need to see it. God bless you. Who need to see it done a couple times. Who just need to see the doctors doing it, need to see other nurses doing it. Those people will get it. And then I, I, I think they will. I think the numbers will rise for healthcare workers. I have faith in our community. I swear I do. Um, anyways, Tricia, uh, we know you have to go study. Um, <laughs> you have a lot of work to do. Sorry. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's yeah, nine yeah. o'clock after after this. I'm gonna go play Sims and then go to bed. So. All right, right on. And a Star Wars T-shirt is on. You have clarified that you are a nerd. Yes. You are. You I have, have a Star Wars tattoo. Oh, what's? Oh my God, the Star. She has the Rebel Alliance tattoo, folks. Yes. Pretty cool. Yep. Um, I had just have hair on my arm. There <laughs> well, you, go. you know. Teach their own. Um, yep. <laughs> so Trisha, thank you so much. Um, we really appreciate your time and, uh, we're looking forward to seeing what you accomplish with the rest of your career. I think it's going to be pretty amazing and I'm really looking forward to following along. So please come back on some point and, uh, let us know when you put out some more stuff. And if you ever do a follow up on that study, if you have anything else going on, please let us know. Okay. Yeah. We're working on 2.0, so I will be in touch. Fantastic. Thank you. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Trisha.
Okay. Oh, um, I love your um, Star of David sweater, I think. Oh, can you see it? I was going to show it to you in the middle, and then I was like, that's not appropriate. Nobody needs to know that I'm wearing a Junicorn sweater. Oh my sweater. god, everyone needs to know you're wearing a Junicorn shirt. Yeah. Junicorns. <laughs> this podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult a physician or other qualified health care provider for your specific health care needs or concerns. The opinions expressed on this podcast do not represent the opinions of our employees. Details in the podcast have been changed so that patient identification is not possible. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 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 Mm